Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Hello, my name is Chuck. I will be your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 52. This episode is brought to you by Arizona Soaring Incorporated, the nation's largest provider of professional glider training. Since 1969, they provided training from initial private through CFI Glider and entry-level through advanced aerobatics. Open year-round, seven days a week. More information is available at azsoaring.com. On this episode of the podcast, our guest glider pilot is Brian Utley. Brian's aviation story begins in Europe. The year is 1939. As a young boy, he is standing and watching the skies above him fill with aircraft. World War II has begun. This is only the beginning of his amazing aviation journey. He shares with us today, now on Soaring the Sky. Brian Utley, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Chuck. Welcome to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you today. Well, it's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, we've chatted a couple times, and you were telling about your story, and what what an interesting story. But I will let you share that. So when exactly did your interest in aviation begin? Oh, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, and I have to go back to uh, my childhood and what my mother told me. Uh, she told me that when I was five years old, we would the family would go to a uh, local fair, an annual fair, and there on the roundabouts was a, an airplane. And she told me that I would immediately dash over to the airplane and want to get in and be the pilot. And this would happen every time he went to the fairgrounds. And that was in about 1937. And, and that I think was the beginning of my demonstrated interest in airplanes. It wasn't because there was a lot of airplanes flying around because where we were located, uh, there was very, very few airplanes ever passed by. But somehow I had an interest in what was in the air and what the stories about people who flew airplanes. But it wasn't very long before my life would change and seemingly the whole world would change because in 1939, uh, September the 1st, uh, World War II, World War II would, would start by the German invasion into Poland. But first, let me tell you where I was living at the time. I was living on the outskirts of a town by the name of Hull, which was a large port, a fishing and seafaring port on the estuary of the River Humber. Now, this is located on the North Sea, about 160 miles north of London. After Germany invaded Poland, on the 3rd of September, the United Kingdom and France declared war on Germany by, because of a treaty which bound the two countries to Poland in the event that Poland was attacked. It was not long after this that Hull became a prime target for the Luftwaffe, because it was a shipping center for northern European countries, including Poland and Russia. Before long, the skies were filled with the sounds of Heinkel 111s, Dornier 217s, exploding bombs, anti-aircraft barrages, nights in the air raid shelter, which then became common. 
And I have to tell you a little bit about the limitations on how we lived at that time. Because of the exposure to German bombing, everything was blacked out. There were no street lights. Downstairs, windows had to be totally shuttered at night. Bedrooms had no lights whatsoever. We dressed and slept and, and uh, undressed in the dark. Uh, so it was, a, it was a huge change from what we had, had been to. Before long, uh, Spitfires uh, came to defend us. And it was really a thrill to see those Spitfires in the air. They are such graceful aircraft. And, and of course, we started to depend upon the Spitfires as well as the anti-aircraft batteries and the barrage balloons, which scattered the sky. The, the reason for the barrage balloons was to elevate the minimum altitudes of the bombers so they could not do low-level bombing. It also provided a target altitude for the anti-aircraft guns with uh, that had uh, altitude-sensitive shells that uh, uh, were set for uh, the approximate altitude that the bombers were flying at. Now, as you can imagine, this was a frightening experience for a young boy, but it was also exciting because everything was happening in the air, and it was dramatic, and it made me feel like it would be so exciting to be able to be in one of those machines, to be able to fly one of those machines, especially the Spitfire. Because of uh, the history of World War One, the Germans had used poisonous gas. We feared that the Germans would use poisonous gas again and would drop poisonous gas uh, along with the incendiary bombs and explosive bombs. Because of that, we were required to carry with us wherever we went gas masks and little packages that we strapped on uh, just in case uh, an attack came along and the Germans did use gas. Fortunately, we never were exposed to that kind of warfare, and uh, we were very, very happy about that. But needless to say, our lifestyles were changed dramatically. The morning after a night raid, uh, you go down the streets, and of course the, uh, the damage was visible, houses and the buildings destroyed or badly damaged. Uh, it is something that, that it's, it's impossible to describe adequately, except to try to visualize what it would look like if you went on the street one day and it was perfectly normal, and the next day uh, rubble would be in the streets and the houses would be damaged and people would be standing around uh, wondering what to do now. As, uh, as young boys, one of our hobbies was to go out in the fields and hunt for birds' eggs and wild berries uh, where we lived, there were fields scattered around and a lot of wildlife, uh, particularly birds that nested in the hedgerows. After the bombing started, we developed a new hobby. We would go hunting for shrapnel, shrapnel from the bombs and shrapnel from the anti-aircraft shells. And we made collections of the shrapnels, which were just twisted pieces of metal. The toll from the bombing was really dramatic in our hometown. It was 90% damaged or destroyed. And uh, it's impossible to adequately describe what that means. But the impact on 
how people lived, how they traveled, uh, is uh, is indescribable. My father, who uh, was a tradesman, he was a plaster, was not able to uh, be uh, enlisted in the army because he had a handicap. He was deaf. And because of that, he was employed in the rebuilding and repairing of, uh, of damaged houses. Uh, needless to say, uh, he was always very, very, very busy. It was soon time to return the favor. And first, we would see Wellingtons and Lancasters and Halifaxes heading out over the coast towards the uh, towards Germany and uh, European countries. They would they would bomb at nighttime. That was always the mode of the RAF because of the uh, exposure to defensive activity, aircraft, and the fighter fighters from uh, uh, Germany that would attack them as they were making their bombing runs. Then in 1943, we started to see U.S. Army Air Force coming into play. The uh, the B-17s and the B-24s would uh, start to arrive. And, and now we had the sky filled with the American planes, the RAF planes, and it was almost impossible to not see a group of planes in the air at, at, at any point in time. The B-17s and the B-24s would go out in the morning and come back uh, late afternoon. Then they would gather in formations and we would see at any one point in time, 30, 40, 50, 100 planes gathering into a formation before they started out. Uh, not far from where I lived was uh, an RAF airbase. In the early evening, say six, seven, eight o'clock, depending on the uh, time of uh, season, we would see the Lancasters and Lincolns and Halifaxes assembled into formations and head out. And I remember vividly uh, waking up at around four or five o'clock in the morning and listening to the bombers coming back in ones and twos and sputtering engines. It was just disturbing disturbing uh, event because you knew that some of them wouldn't make it, some of them didn't get back, and, and those that got back were struggling to uh, to make it to the uh, to the airport. But I was interested in the airplanes. I was fascinated by them. I wanted to see them anytime they were around. If I wanted, I wanted to uh, see pictures of them, and uh, I started building model airplanes both rubber-powered and gliders. And Christmas wasn't Christmas if Santa didn't put a model airplane kit in my stocking. Well, finally, of course, the the war ended in 1945 for us, a little later for the the U.S. and Japan. And I remember going to the local public library one day. I used to read a lot. And I found a book called Soaring Flight by Terence Horsley a well-known English glider pilot. So I took the book and I read it. I was fascinated. I could not put it down. And I read it and read it and read it over and over and over again. It had a treasure trove of information about gliding in the 30s, about pictures of the of the gliders that were popular in the 30s, the Minimoas and so on. And it focused my interest in flying without any power and I, in fact, I would I would often dream about what it would be like to fly one of those machines, to go ridge soaring, to find thermals, and and uh, really have not have the sound of an engine, but have the quietness of a of a, of a glider. 
parenthetically, years later, I was able to find a copy of the book uh, at a used bookstore, and it sits on my in my collection uh, on my in my bookshelf today. Now, the war was over, but I was not able to fulfill my dreams of flying. Now, in the meantime, uh, many changes were taking place in my life. In 1949, I was offered an opportunity to emigrate to the United States with the help of friends of the family. Now, naturally, I was excited about the possibility and accepted the offer, even though it meant that I was going to leave my family and travel by boat and train across the ocean and across the, the United States to Ogden, Utah, and I would be doing it alone. So uh, that was a whole new adventure because for me, and with our humble uh, lifestyle, I had never traveled more than 50 miles away from home in my entire life. I had ridden in a car only three times, and I was always either on a bus or riding a bicycle. Fortunately, uh, my family was able to join me one year later so that we were reunited as a family, my mother and my father and my two sisters. It was time for me to uh, earn a living. And I started working at the Hill Air Force Base in the accounting department. I was trained to operate IBM accounting machines. Also on the side, I studied mechanical and electrical engineering. And this uh, allowed me to secure a position with IBM after a few years. Internet, IBM, of course, is international business machines. I started as a customer engineer in 1955, about the same time that I got married and started a family. IBM sent me to New York for training. And then in 1956, they sent me to San Francisco to service IBM customers. There, after I became acquainted with uh, my customers and a number of people, I found several young men who were also interested in flying. So in late 1958, we took the plunge and we bought an air coupe and we hired an instructor to teach us how to fly. We kept the air coupe at the Hayward Airport, which is about 13 miles south of Oakland on the east side of the San Francisco Bay. And my training progressed very nicely. I sold quickly. I did cross-country flying, and uh, uh, I felt very comfortable and looked forward to being able to get my license. But more changes came in my life. In April 1959, uh, based on how well I was performing in maintaining IBM machines, I was asked to move to the San Jose Development Laboratory to join a group of engineers developing a new transistorized accounting machine. About the same time, in the airport at Hayward, I saw a bulletin board notice advertising glider rides at Sky Sailing Airport in Centerville, which is now Fremont, which is about halfway between Hayward and San Jose. So as soon as I could, I found my way to Sky Sailing uh, to see what it looked like and uh, whether I could get a trial ride in a glider. The airport is a grass strip uh, owned by Les Arnold, and Les Arnold owned a commercial glider operation. He was a well-known glider pilot and instructor and had two gliders, a Schweitzer TG3 two-place gliding trainer that was used in World War II to train glider pilots, and, a, and it was called Red Wing, a Schweitzer 126 single-place glider and a tow plane. Now, it was interesting how important the TG3 was. The, uh, after the end of the war, 
the government sold surplus TG3s for $2,500, which is incredible. So it was made it relatively easy to start up a glider training operation, which is what Les Arnold did. And I found him to be a very nice person and a very helpful instructor. And it wasn't very long before he had the red ring out on the on the ramp. He had the tow plane warming up and he said, come on, let's go. So we took off and the tow plane headed southeast to a ridge just uh, two and a half miles away called Mission Peak. The Mission Peak is a peak on the east siding. It's an east siding. I'm sorry. It's a west facing ridge. 2,500 foot high, and it produces several miles of soarable ridge. But because of the prevailing winds are from the west in California and the Bay Area, it allowed for ridge soaring, and that's exactly what we did. What an incredible experience that was, because we slope soared for over an hour with, a, with no engine, and, and I even had an opportunity to do some of the flying. Well, needless to say, I was hooked. So I, I sold my share in the air coupe, and I didn't fly power again for 10 years. But because of my air coupe experience, I was quickly able to solo and get my complete my private certificate. After I got my certificate, uh, Les suggested I might want to join the North Cali- Northern California Gliding Association. And they operated from uh, Hummingbird Haven, which was on the east side of Livermore, which was on the east side of the, the uh, mountains that we had been flying over. And it was conveniently at the foot of a west-facing ridge. The uh, Hummingbird Haven was an 80-acre grass field with a 2,600-foot runway, hangars, all glider hangars, and a clubhouse, and a private home owned by Ted Nelson, who also owned the property. The, uh, it was a beautiful field, and uh, on the north side of the, uh, the field was a beautiful row of eucalyptus trees, which were very prominent, and we could sight them from the ridge, so we knew exactly where to make a a, a downwind approach to the airport. Now, Ted Nelson is also a glider pilot, or was, and he's now uh, passed, and he was the owner of an engineering company. Ted and associate, Harry Pearl, designed and built a two-place glider with a retractable four- 40 horsepower engine, which was also designed and built by Ted. I believe this is the first instance of a glider with a retractable engine. Think of what's happened with retractable engines since that time, uh, even to uh, the uh, glider that I now have, which is a, a, an 800B with a 53 horsepower engine. So where did it retract? It retracted to the rear, just like the conventional motor gliders do today. Okay. Now, club members owned quite a few gliders, and they were, of course, hangered right at the field. The club owned a Pratt-Reed side-by-side two-place glider. and that, uh, Most likely, most people have never heard of a Pratt-Reed, but it was also a World War II training glider, but it was side-by-side. The club also owned a TG3 and a 126. I thoroughly enjoyed flying the ridge and the Livermore Valley and the association of the experienced pilots which were in the club. So I was able to spend many hours uh, on weekends flying the ridge and flying through that valley. But all of this was about to be sidelined by IBM. Now, I told you earlier that IBM meant international business machines. But some people interpret that to mean I've been moved. (laughs) 
<laughs> my project at the uh, San Jose Laboratories was incomplete, was being completed, and the German new the new German laboratories needed someone to help train the German engineers on the latest technologies. So serendipity, my manager and I were selected to go to Germany and perform this task. So on January 1961, it was off on a new adventure. My family now with three daughters would join me in the spring. Germany was very interesting. Uh, of course, uh, the first time that I had been there. The laboratories were located in a town by the name of Berblingen, which is adjacent to another town called Sindelfingen. And both were uh, on the outskirts of Stuttgart, which is a well-known German town, which is on the, what is the name of the river? It's a wine-growing country. Anyway, we, uh, we, we settled in, and uh, I got to know the, uh, uh, the German engineers, many of whom had fought in the war. We also found the uh, U.S. Army facility that was adjacent called Patch Barracks. Patch Barracks was the, uh, the old headquarters of the German tank commander, Rommel. We were invited to join the officers club, which was very, very handy for us because we could uh, then associate with uh, a group of, uh, of Americans. Although we, uh, we did enjoy uh, working and being with the, uh, our German comrades. We uh, communicated, or we received American Forces Network, AFN, for our news information, which was also very, very helpful because uh, during the time that we were there, the Russians were threatening to invade Germany and we were instructed to never let our gasoline tanks get less than half full, always have a suitcase packed and be ready to depart uh, to the West at a moment's notice. Fortunately, that, uh, that never materialized. But uh, just to illustrate that the times were very tense. And this is at the same time that the Berlin Wall was being erected. Anxious to get in the air, I inquired about flying and found that there was a glider sport group called the Berlingen Flugsport Group located between Berlingen and Sindelfingen. It was a grass strip airport and it had three gliders, a Scheiba Elspatz, about the same performance as a 126, high wing, strutted, a Bergfalke, which is a two-place training uh, glider, and a Zugvogel, which was at that time one of the uh, highest performance gliders available. So I introduced myself uh, on, a, on a weekend to the, uh, to the club. They welcomed me with open arms. And, uh, and I joined the club. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Now, winches uh, were used for launching. And so uh, uh, I had to be checked out. Uh, they checked me out in the Bergfalke. And very soon I was, uh, I was solo flying the L-spots uh, in, in, around the area. So it was a, it was a lot of fun. Uh, the, uh, the group was very sociable uh, and uh, had, a, had a, a routine. Uh, on a Saturday or Sunday morning, we would uh, meet early in the morning. We'd uh, load up uh, the uh, club uh, van with uh, with uh, drinks. And would you believe at that time, back in, this is 1961, they would uh, take two or three cases of beer and we'd go out to the uh, uh, to the flight line, to, to the launching point, get the ropes out, get the winch out, and uh, 
and get set for flying. Some of them spoke uh, some English, but uh, they spent a lot of time teaching me German, and uh, it was a lot of fun to uh, to go through that process. Uh, I never did any cross-country flying in, uh, in in Germany at that time, but I uh, did enjoy uh, flying in the in the uh, in the local area. And about the time of uh, about mid 1962, IBM, uh, you know, reared its uh, its head and said, "Time." for a change. So the plan was for me to go back to San Jose and to uh, uh, develop a, another another project, another computer project. I was uh, fascinated by the thought of having that Sufogel in California. So I negotiated a purchase of, of that machine. And this is the time when fiberglass was just beginning to come in. So it was, uh, it was timely because fiberglass, uh, the fiberglass gliders were very, very expensive and would not be readily available. But I could get a Tsufogel and I could get it into California uh, within uh, uh, a very short time. Can you yeah, describe the, the performance of the Zufo? Yes, it was about 38 to 1. It's about the same performance as a Skylark, which was also one of the top gliders at that time. It was a steel tube fuselage, wooden wing, single-seater, the, the A model had a, a, a skid. It did not have a retractable landing gear. But it was uh, the most notable feature of the uh, Zufogel was, uh, and it was basically because of the airfoil design, It was uh, its high-speed performance was far superior to that of the Skylark. So it was, a, it was an excellent cross-country machine. Now, before uh, I left Germany, I did go to the Scheibe factory, which was in a town called Dachau, which is uh, just outside Munich, or München, as they would say. I went to the Scheibe factory so I could talk to them about the uh, their gliders, and uh, I was in, uh, wanting to get more information about the possibility of importing Zufogels into the U.S. It turns out that in Dachau, there's also one of the famous... German internment camps that uh, caused so many Jewish and others to uh, lose their lives. And I paid a visit to the uh, to Dachau. At that time, it was still very much in its original state as uh, the, as of the end of the war. Uh, the, uh, the the bunkers and uh, huts and the gas chambers and the uh, uh, the ovens were still as they had stood in 1945. Wow! It was it was a, a very very sobering visit. As you walk into the camp, there's a, a sign and there's a steel fence, and the sign says "Work makes free, Arbeit macht frei." This is what people saw as they came into the camp, and of course we know the truth. The truth was was nothing like that. And that's a memory that I've never, ever, ever forgotten. Uh, it, it's such a sobering uh, thought that here, passed through these gates, passed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who that was the first and last time that they would pass through those gates. They would uh, be interned there after they would they would send them out to labor camps, but but they would uh, also deplete the excess population uh, on, a, on a regular basis. Now, back to uh, more friendly uh, topics. I, I purchased that Zufogel, uh, had it shipped to California, 
went back and rejoined my club. And there I found a, a partner uh, by the name of uh, Mark Fitzsimmons. He became my partner. So he became a two owner uh, ship. I was able to get my silver sea distance out of uh, Hummingbird Haven, flying into the uh, into the valley, uh, California, San Joaquin Valley. So I got a I got a badge. And then uh, in 1963, there was a, a northwestern region contest, and it was uh, as I said in, in Haley, Idaho. Haley is right by. Uh, Sun Valley. Haley has the airport that uh, people fly into to go to Sun Valley. We looked at that and we thought, wow, wouldn't it be fun to be able to take the Tsukpogel and go to uh, Haley and fly in the Idaho mountains? So we uh, we went there and uh, and it was beautiful. We took turns flying on the uh, I, I flew the first day and it was the weather was not too good. And I landed at the first turn point. Uh, the second day was was not much better. My partner flew. The third day there was a forecast that looked more a little bit more favorable. They were forecasting scattered cumulus over the mountains with bases at 14,000 feet. The stability index was plus seven, which wasn't great. Uh, the winds were 10 knots from 250 at 7,000 feet, 20 knots at 19, uh, 190 at 10,000 feet, 28 knots at 190 at 12,000 feet, and 40 knots uh, from 21,000, uh, 40 knots at 2100, or 210, I should say, 210 degrees at 15,000 feet. So it, it looked like there was a possibility uh, because of the strong winds from the uh, from the southwest to uh, to fly northeast, so I declared a flight from Haley to Butte, Montana. Now Butte, Montana is 303 kilometers, so that would be a diamond goal flight if I could make it. So I uh, now Haley, Idaho is about 5,300 feet, and uh, I forget how high Butte, Montana is, but it's. Uh, a little bit lower than, than 4,300 feet, 5,300 feet. Uh, there were three mountain ranges that had to be crossed, and a lot of unlanded, unlandable or in, uh, uninhabited areas between Haley and Butte. So anyway, I was going to uh, give it my shot. So I took off and headed east out of the Haley, and then turned over the first row of mountains to the to the northeast. Didn't have any particular problem, got over that ridge. I don't recall how high those mountains are, but crossed the next valley, and the next valley was desolate. There was nothing there. There was one little road that ran from the south to the north with no signs of inhabitation, no signs of, of cultivation. It was, it was deserted. Flew across the valley and ended up on the side of Mount Bora. Now, Mount Bora is 12,500 feet. That's the highest mountain in Idaho. So I ridge soared along the side of the mountain to see if I could pick up a thermal. All of a sudden, I hit this big, big thump, downdraft. It pushed my head through the canopy. I broke the canopy of the glider. Oh, left, wow. From left to right. And, and I, 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 I was shaken. I, and I, but I, I looked out at the wings. The wings were on. I felt the controls. Well, that, they seemed to be okay. The best course was to just try to keep on going. 
And about that time, I looked at the altimeter, and it was spinning upward. The vario was showing 2,500 feet a minute. I topped out at 14,000 feet just below cloud base. It was incredible. I've never since then experienced a thermal that strong. But boy, boy, I was now I was excited because I felt that I had uh, with with 14,000 feet, I had a good chance of making uh, Butte, Montana. Sure enough, I did. I made Butte, Montana with uh, with 14,000 feet. I looked down at the field. Gorgeous. At that time, uh, the, uh, the the airport wasn't an airport. It was an emergency landing field. In those days, they had emergency landing fields for uh, for commercial aircraft just in case they ran into trouble. And now I had to make a decision. Am I going to land or am I going to keep on going? Cold air blowing into the cockpit through the cracked uh, canopy. I said, well, I made a declaration. I have it. It's in the bag if I go down. So I did. I, I spiraled down uh, to land. That same day, Paul Bickle, who was in the contest, flew from Haley up into Canada, 557 miles. Wow. Which was a record flight. So uh, I felt I felt pretty good <laughs> on my third cross <laughs> third cross country flight. I got my diamond gold. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing, I would say. And I had this amazing, absolutely amazing flight across Mount Bora. Oh, it must have been absolutely beautiful. It was. It was. It was. It was gorgeous. So, needless to say, that was uh, uh, that was something <laughs> I was very happy to take take back home. Yeah, absolutely. No. Now, we were talking earlier. You did some soaring in Sweden, also. Well, I'm, I'm coming. Can I come to that in just a minute? Oh, sure, sure. Sorry, I don't want to fast forward you. <laughs> go ahead. I got a couple of couple of spots. I just a little bit more to okay. go. After that, things got very, very busy for me at, at IBM. I had a new uh, a new product that I was developing uh, and uh, wanted to get it out. A, a pretty good science engineering uh, team uh, working on it, and that kept us going. On some days, we'd work 32 hours. <laughs> To, uh, to finish, to complete the product, the design and the uh, and the testing of the product. So I was, uh, I didn't have much spare time. Uh, I did some local gliding at the how at uh, at the Haven, but I, I didn't have a lot of spare time. I couldn't do any adventurous flying uh, because of the of the uh, lack of uh, of time. I got the project through, and we announced the uh, product that became the IBM 1130. Small scientific computer. That was in 1965. It was at that time it was the cheapest uh, computer that IBM had in its inventory. And we, of course, after you make an announcement like that, you have to deliver the product. So we had the uh, uh, delivered the product, and, uh, and that was in 1966. It was uh, because of that project. My responsibilities were expanded. They were expanded to include not only small scientific computers, but also process control computers. And in the process computer line, there was a series of projects in Stockholm, Sweden. And IBM had a lab, small laboratory in, in Stockholm. So I had a responsibility for projects in Stockholm uh, and in San Jose. In uh, 1967, it was decided that I should go to Stockholm to provide a, a, a direct uh, supervision over the projects that were there. 
Uh, and that's what I did. I went, I flew to Stockholm, Stockholm, and t- took the family. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't aware of any uh, gliding activity in, uh, in around that area. But of course, Stockholm is sitting on the Baltic with a lot of islands uh, in the Baltic. While I was in San Francisco, I had done a, a quite a bit of sailing in the uh, San Francisco Bay. So I thought it might be fun to do some sailing out of Stockholm. So I, I purchased a, uh, a sailboat, which was designed uh, for the Baltic for rough weather. Uh, it was a 20, about a 27, 28 foot sailboat. Decided I was going to uh, use the sailboat next uh, summer in the, in the Baltic. As it turns out, the projects in the laboratory were disappointed. I, I canceled all the projects. And of course, no one was happy about that, but it was the right thing to do. The, pro- the projects would never have, uh, have realized any uh, substantial market uh, opportunity. So I canceled the projects, which meant that I no longer was required in Stockholm, and I was heading back to San Jose. I got back to San Jose and and assume my previous uh, responsibilities in uh, in San Jose, and then was told that instead of bringing the family back to San Jose and buy another house, IBM had other plans. IBM wanted to form a new laboratory in Boca Raton, Florida, and they wanted my projects to be moved to Florida. So now I was going to move uh, 350 families from San Jose, California, to Boca Raton, Florida. And that completes this episode of uh, my flying experience. My experience in Florida is a whole new chapter, and, uh, and I would like to have the opportunity to make that phase two of this, this discussion. Absolutely. Brian, thank you for being on the podcast. I'm looking forward to hearing the second chapter, and we will be sharing that with the listeners on the next episode. So thanks once again for being with us and looking forward to hearing that. Thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the podcast. Brian has an amazing story. I'm excited to hear the rest of it when he joins us next week. I'm honored to be able to hear his story and share it with you. Until then, feel free to check out our previous episodes if you haven't heard them yet. Also, this is a big month for the soaring community as the SSA Soaring Convention will be going on in Little Rock, Arkansas. If you want some more information on that, you can check out the SSA.org. And for more information on how to interact with us on social media, Michelle is here to tell you about that. You can find us on social media. On Facebook, it's Soaring the Sky Podcast. On Instagram, it's the same, Soaring the Sky Podcast. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky.